Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It was so important to be a part of community, to find strength in each other, to know that on the days that I can't move forward, someone else is going to take up the baton and move forward for me. Our earliest memories shape us in profound ways. Do we conform? Do we rebel? Do we hide or fight? I'm Helga Davis. Professor, lawyer, and ACLU President Deborah Archer sat down to speak with me about some of her earliest moments and how they shaped her desire to fight for equality. This is my conversation with Deborah Archer. And good morning. Good morning. Oh, how nice. First things first, how's your little person? Oh, he's good. And he's not that little. He's he's 15. But in my mind, he's little. And when they are sick, they are all little again. I have two boys, 15 and 17. Wow. Yes, yes. But they're my babies. I have a friend who is, uh, she just went to California to visit one of her sons who just turned 30. And she said, she's, and she said, I'm going to see my babies. And I remember them when they were babies, like really babies. Yes. And so it's interesting to hear how the return to them, no matter how, all, how old or young or tall or anything they are, they're, they're still your babies. And I feel that way with my own parents. I am turning 50 years old this year. And my mother still refers to me as her baby. And um, and I like that. And I embrace that. I think I was in law school when I stopped getting an Easter basket. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What do you think, what's, what's in there for them and for you in being someone's baby and receiving that? Yeah. Well, in my relationship with my boys, them being my baby to me means that I am always taking care of them, Mm -hmm. making sure uh, that they have everything that they need to feel loved, to feel empowered, to feel like they can live the lives of lives of choice and and happiness. And I think that my parents both still feel that kind of responsibility to me. My parents still feel a sense of of obligation, a sense of love that uh, wa- makes them want to to care for me. And I think that that's what, to me, that's what it is, it, what I feel when I talk about my two teenage boys as babies. How do you think that translates in this moment in our country? I have found that being a parent in this moment has been more challenging than it ever has been, particularly, I think, as a parent who is raising uh, two young Black men in in America, in New York City, um, while all of this is going on, while the world is in chaos, while we're witnessing rage at, at, at at the discrimination and the humiliation that people have experienced bubble to the top, and we're seeing the violence of racism in all its forms. And I have struggled to 
to, to strike a balance between how much do I want them to see? I mm-hmm. want them to understand the world that they are going out into, to understand the dangers of the world. I don't want to shield them from what was going on over the past year and a half, but also then trying to balance that against the trauma. I want to model strength and resilience for my children. It's something that I've tried to do always, and that was harder in this moment um, as I was struggling with my own emotions and trying to strike a balance on how much do I uh, show that to them and how much do I try to remain strong and, and, and resilient to support them. But and, and it's both things that they need and that we need too, right? It's to acknowledge what's happening and also to know that we are strong and resilient, that both things are true at the same time. Absolutely. You know, it's something we have to remind ourselves that it's okay to be sad, to be vulnerable, to be hurt, to be afraid, to be uncertain about the future, but then to know that we will carry on, that we have to carry on. We don't have any options, that we are where we are because of the people who came before us refused to to stop and they continue to push forward. So we must do the same for the generations that will come after us. And then what is it like to carry that knowledge and knowing into an organization like the American Civil mm-hmm. Liberties Union and have to find a way to strike a balance there as well? Oh, the, the balances there are tremendous. <laughs> The organization has a story that people tell about who the ACLU is and what the ACLU does. And in so many ways, who I am as a person doesn't line up with the story that people have told about that organization. Can you say in which ways? We recently started to say that we are fighting for an America where we the people means everyone. And it is an organization that I think sees the humanity in everyone and the value in everyone and is willing to fight for that, for that inclusion. Uh, when I was growing up, I experienced a, a lot of discrimination. The challenges that come from being black and poor in the United States. My parents are Jamaican immigrants and I'm the first person in my family to, to go to college. And we grew up in Connecticut, one of the richest states in the country. And, and that combination was a daily challenge. There were daily struggles. And when I was graduated from law school and had proclaimed that I was going to be a civil rights attorney who focused on racial justice to fight the kind of discrimination that my family had fought against on a daily basis, and that I was going to start my career at the ACLU, <laughs> the response <laughs> was yes. total and complete confusion because it's not an organization that's that people recognize is there to fight for everyone, to recognize everyone's humanity. So let's go back yes. to that. What do you think the view is of the ACLU? I think people view it as a, a white organization that focuses on First Amendment. When in fact, we are an incredibly diverse organization in every way that you measure diversity that is fighting for civil rights and civil liberties, all of them. We are 
working to protect the Bill of Rights, but we're also working to protect the Reconstruction Amendments. We care about the First Amendment, but we care about the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment as well. And that comes with challenges that we struggle with and think about and talk about every day. I started my career, my legal career in 1997 at the ACLU as a legal fellow, doing the full range of work that we've talked about, doing women's rights work, doing racial justice work, doing First Amendment work, privacy work, that this has been who we are uh, from the beginning. And that has been a challenge, and I think it's going to continue to be a challenge to help people see themselves in our work, to help people understand who we have always been, but also how we've evolved and what that means. And so where is where's the part in which you feel yourself at odds with or in conflict with in terms of just who you are as a person? I think that uh, I would not be being honest with myself if I said that it was easy to be someone who has been the victim of racial discrimination and someone whose family has been targeted by racists. When I was really young in elementary school, my parents moved from Hartford, Connecticut to a suburb of Hartford, Connecticut because they wanted us to move out of the the poverty that we were living in. They wanted us to move to a more integrated community, to have uh, safer streets, to be able to play in the playground, to attend better schools, all of the things that parents want for their children. And they moved us to this suburb. And when we moved to this suburb, we were one of three black families in the community. And the other members of the community weren't happy about that and in many ways reminded of the fact that we were not welcome. But when I was in elementary school, woke up uh, to find that our house and our car had been vandalized and KKK had been painted. Um, and my parents had to explain to me what that meant. Why was KKK painted on our house and our car? Why did, were our neighbors unwelcoming? Why weren't we wanted here? And it really just shifted the way that I engaged with the world. And that person sometimes does find it a challenge to be in an organization where some of the clients don't believe in my humanity where some of the clients uh, would certainly push back against my ability to live in the community, to, to attend the same schools as their children. And, and so that can be a challenge. It doesn't undermine my commitment to our rights, to our core civil liberties, to our core civil rights. And silencing those folks are not, in my mind, the way to true equality, justice, to freedom. There are other tools, and the ACLU is using those other tools, and I'm I'm glad to be a part of that a part of that work. It's such a prickly and precarious place to be, and so then, what do you do? How do you take care of yourself mm -hmm. when you're not negotiating and navigating the center for the country? <laughs> it is a prickly place to be that requires that we have difficult and challenging conversations every day, day after day, and that can be exhausting. Some days it's invigorating to have uh, conversations on an intellectual level on how laws can uh, mesh and work together and how can we challenge new and emerging tools um, to oppress 
people in oppressed communities, how can we get at entrenched discrimination? Uh, but it's not just an intellectual exercise. No. These, that's, what right, about your heart? Right? This is Deborah. my heart. This is <laughs> these are people's lives. These are mm. our, our children, our neighbors, our friends, our family, and it's me, me personally. I'm so caught up in those conversations. I think it's important for us to find spaces of rest, find ways to engage in self-care, to step away from conversations for a minute, for an hour, for a week, for however long it takes for us to protect ourselves and our health and our well-being. Um, you know, sometimes I remind myself of the words of James Baldwin, in essence, to not believe what they say about us, that we are not who they say we are, and to remind myself every day as I navigate spaces where I'm not expected to be or I'm not not wanted. It's, it's not just a challenge navigating the legal social justice issues at the ACLU. It's a challenge that I think people of color, women of color, experience as we navigate white spaces. So what I do is I said is I remind myself that I belong. I remind myself that I'm not who they say I am. I try to surround myself by people who are focused on building me up, on supporting me. I was at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. We were in a building with other social justice organizations, including organizations like Asian American Legal Defense Fund, um, and at that point, the, uh, the Puerto Rican Legal Defense Fund. And it was so important to be a part of community, to find strength in each other, to know that on the days that I can't move forward, someone else is going to take up the baton and move forward for me. Mm -hmm. I find inspiration and strength in my students. Each and every year, I have a new group of students who I can help um, teach them the skills, knowledge, abilities that they're going to need to join this fight on the days that I can't, and um, long after I am gone, each year I have a new crop of mentors who are teaching me to care for myself in different ways, to care for my community in different ways, teaching me uh, different ways to show up in this fight for, for justice, to be creative, to not be daunted by um, the failures of the past. So there are so many ways in which um, Deborah as a person uh, get strength and hope and inspiration. When you talk about being creative, say more about mm -hmm. that. Because I think that that one of the things that I'm I'm always digging at and, and trying to uncover is this idea of being creative in our problem solving, mm -hmm. in confronting our challenges. I think part of it begins with being open to letting go of an outcome. I think that's right. I see it as letting go of an outcome and letting go of a process. That there are ways mm. that um, particularly uh, lawyers are taught about how to approach problems. Law is about problem solving. And I want to be, and I want my students to be creative problem solvers that are using all of the tools available to us uh, to tackle injustice, to redefine justice, to bring us uh, closer to that point of justice. So in being creative, we're thinking differently about how we get to the point where we want to be. It's not a, just about litigation. How can we 
uh, use community organizing? How can we use narrative to achieve justice? How are we changing the story or expanding ideas, thinking about different ways to approach problems? And how are we redefining what justice means? Look at where we are today. I think 20 years ago, the idea that justice could be reparations or justice could be a shift in funding so that we are funding public safety in a different way. We could have never imagined that those would be the goals we were fighting for. And so creativity of activists and communities have brought us to the point where we're thinking more expansively about what we want to accomplish. What do we need to accomplish to make sure that everyone is living happy, choice-filled lives? But Deborah, it's also in our personal relationships too, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it's it can begin there in our own families, in our own circle of people. I think that's such an important part too. That yes, we think globally, but they're still made up of people. And you're bringing us right back to the beginning where you asked me why I'm still my mother's baby. (laughs) And it is about caring for the people in our lives and the problems and the challenges that we face in our lives. But I'm curious to hear about how you're viewing that and seeing that in your families and in your... uh... I'm Terrence McKnight. Join me for a new season of the podcast where people tell stories about the classical music that shaped their lives. I'm Tom Hiddleston. My name is Natalie Joachim. I'm Marin Alsop, and you're listening to The Open Ears Project. You're going to meet some incredible people, and maybe, like them, fall in love with a piece of music. The Open Ears Project. Listen wherever you get podcasts. In your community. Well, it's much harder in with my own family. Mm-hmm. And... I can't say that I am successful there. That the issues I see and am moved by and moved to get involved with globally are, are ones that I'm able to solve with the people who, that I come from. And this is why I was asking, because what I find I do is exactly what's happening in the country. I protect myself. Mm. If you continue to make disparaging remarks about this or that group, I'm not going to sit at a table with you. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to dinner with you. I'm not coming to your birthday party. I'm not, I know, just know. And know that I'm not coming because you hold this view. Yeah. So it's a form of protection. And then the second part of it is for me to find the people, as you said, who are lifting me up, who are engaged in a different kind of conversation. So that what I recognize is that I have a limited amount of time and energy, and that's not where I want to spend it. And I don't know if if that is a right thing. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not spending it there, how is it then that I justify going somewhere else and saying I'm going to help these people or this cause or this situation? I think it is absolutely a right thing because it is, it's one about protecting you um, and knowing yourself, knowing what you can and cannot um, 
endure and still protect who you are. I, I don't think that everyone has to be involved in advocacy and social movements and justice in the same way. And so there are many people, you are not alone, who cannot have those conversations with people who will never see eye to eye with you on points that are very fundamental to who you are and what you believe. And no one should be forced to have those conversations. I think I have a little bit more tolerance for those conversations <laughs> than, 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 than many people. Um, and I think because I'm, I'm a teacher, and my classroom is filled with students who show up to this work and show up in my class in many different ways and many different points in their journeys and their understanding. They have many reasons for taking my class. Oftentimes I have students who have disagree with just about everything that I have to say, but appreciate that I'm open to the conversation to help them as they continue to try to understand. And so as long as a, a someone is open to a conversation, open to learning, then I'm, I'm open to having that conversation with them. But I, I, like many others, am growing wary of having conversations with people who aren't listening. But it's no point in spinning our wheels. To engage in where we think that we can be effective while protecting ourselves is, is the sweet spot, right? That is, I think, the spot we all have to, uh, to work to find where we feel like we are honoring ourselves and who we are and at the same time working to make this world a better place for those who will come after us. Are there things that you do every day, like daily practices that every person could or can do that you feel set you up to have the kind of fortitude and enthusiasm and curiosity hmm. for your day? I'm going to acknowledge that I am awful when it comes to routines of self-care. I'm still working on finding ways to care for myself like I care for, for others. And so trying to develop those practices uh, more. And I've started to uh, first talk to, to someone who loves me, who has loved me forever. My mother, my father, I have an, an aunt who loves me as if I were her own child. I have friends who have been there for a very long time, and I find it incredibly helpful to get through my day by starting my day with a conversation with one of them. Um, and of course, my husband and my children are incredibly supportive, but it's just different when you speak to your mother <laughs> or mm -hmm. uh, someone who loves you in that way. I mm -hmm. also have taken um, to middle-of-the-day walks with oh. no agenda, with a cup of tea. And I have found that I come back to my work with new energy and new insight. And I'm a daily reader. I read something, a magazine. I read books. I'm one of those people who has a stack of, of many, many books. Um, I'm great at starting books, not great at finishing them. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I do read a lot. Those are great suggestions because I think that we all need basic tools mm -hmm. so that we can engage with our days and with our lives and with ourselves. Yeah. Is there a tool you have found particularly helpful as a daily tool? Yeah, I sit every morning. I light a candle mm -hmm. and if I go somewhere and there isn't and I've forgotten my candle, I pour water into mm. a glass. And I just sit down and look at it. 
And usually every morning I walk. Mm -hmm. And like you, when I'm done with that, I come back and I am able to tackle most things. And I write in my journal. That's, that's another thing I do. And there's craziness in there. Really, really <laughs> craziness. I don't judge it. I just let it come out. And then every once in a while, I go back and I look at a week and say, well, what was I doing? What was I thinking about? Where, where was I? Mm -hmm. And even when it feels like nonsense, there may be one sentence in there that helps me understand something that I need to understand on the day that I'm reading after a week or after a month. And I look forward to finding those little nuggets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, your walk, my sitting with tea and walking with tea, uh, reminds me what my students often tell me, that rest is resistance. What I don't do is journal. Um, although many people have talked about how important it is to them, I think I have opportunities to write my thoughts as they relate to civil rights and social justice. But I don't have outlets for the other things in my brain. They're still in there. There's nowhere that I am just <laughs> dropping those out. And so I don't know why I resist the journaling. Well, there are days when I don't do it. And I can tell you why. And I think it's because those days, there's something that hurts so much mm. that I don't, I'm not quite ready to acknowledge it. I don't want to see it. So if I keep it in my head, it can spin. It can be on the TV with all the other images that are kind of floating around. And I don't actually have to stop the channel there mm -hmm. and acknowledge something. Yeah. I'm sure there are so many things that I am not ready to process or want to um, be forced to process. The, the trauma of daily lives that I still remember, things that happened five years ago that pop up in my head. And um, it's tough to process those things. And I think about them too, Deborah, not as letting go, but as integrating. Mm. Just listening to you speak made me think about how important that awareness, that ability is in black and brown communities with the level of trauma in our communities, the things that our children are witnessing every day, the things that people are witnessing every day, um, but don't have the tools or the space uh, to process it, to figure out how it, what it all means, what we're going to do with that, and how to put it aside if we're going to put it aside, how to find power and empowerment from it um, if that's what we're going to do. Um, I, I think that we are lucky you more so because you are much farther along in this process of being able to do that. But even the awareness that we can do that. So many people that I have encountered who are dealing with um, trauma and violence and the violence of racism just don't know how to, to, to move forward from that, how to process that. When I first became president of the ACLU, I received incredibly wonderful messages uh, from people I have known and loved for years uh, and people who I have never met and will never meet who were proud of me and wanted to know that they were proud of me, who 
um, had faith in me and my abilities uh, to, to move forward and to help lead this incredible organization. But I also received and continue to receive hateful emails that do not wish me well, that um, kind of pull in all of the worst elements. And I, I have to remind myself not to be afraid, not to allow my fear of, of getting these emails, not to allow my fear of those uh, folks who I don't know and can't put faces to, to stop me from doing the work I know is important, to stop me from doing the work that makes me happy, to stop me from living my life. And so to move you out of your house. That's right. Again. Exactly. But talking about that racism, talking about those experiences helps me to process and to be reminded that I belong, that this is the right thing, that I have a community of folks who are going to stand with me and protect me and make sure that I feel safe wherever I am. What do you want now? I want to feel like every day I am doing something to make sure that children won't grow up with the challenges that I grew up with. I've been blessed to be in a position where my children will not graduate from college with the kind of debt that I had. But I I still know that my children are called the N-word the way that I was called the N-word. My children experience racism um, every day. My, my sons talk about being followed in the store when they go to the store. And I hope that the work that I do on my own and with others will mean that they won't have to worry about their children the way that I have to worry about them. There will be different worries, but I don't want yes. them to have the same worries that I have each and every time they leave the house. I feel like I'm holding my breath until they come back. Um, and I want them to, to be able to have children in a different world. What about for the organization? For the ACLU, I hope that I will um, help people see the ACLU as an organization that is fighting for them. I will help them see themselves in the ACLU and the work of the ACLU. I hope I will be able to contribute to that conversation, that ongoing conversation that the ACLU has been having for over a hundred years of how we are an organization that fights for civil rights and civil liberties, how we are an organization that cares deeply and passionately about the First Amendment, but also is going to fight um, to fully recognize the 13th Amendment, how we can fight for and protect free speech and also fight for racial justice. As an individual who has lived in this world and walked different steps than many other people in that organization, I hope that um, I can contribute to the conversation in a way that can make this organization um, even better, to live up to its potential and its goal of uh, reconciling the America that's promised with the America that we actually have, to making us better advocates for everyone in, in the community and for us um, to elevate the, the voices and the leadership of people who have been more directly impacted by the full range of issues we engage with. And what do you want for yourself? You know, we said I struggle with this. And so mm -hmm. even now in um, in the face of this question, I, I, I want to be happy. You know, I want to, I want to be happy. Yes. But what does that mean to me at the end mm -hmm. of the day? 
Is there a goal that is just simply Deborah? Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I do think it's important for people who see themselves in the person I was when I was younger, a person who may be the first person in their family to go to college or the, um, the first generation American citizen or someone who just does not see the path from A to B, I hope that I can help people understand that there is a way forward. Uh, I think people often think that it's, uh, it's luck that gets you from A to B or that got me from A to B. And certainly there was a lot of luck involved. But what I think has been more important is that there have been so many people who have invested in me and um, poured into me and the different pieces of me. So people who have helped me develop as a person, people who have invested and helped me develop as a lawyer, people who have helped and invested me develop as a leader. And then there are people who have helped me put it all together Mm. um, to bring me to the point where I am today. Certainly one of those uh, people has been my husband who um, sees all the sides of me, good, bad, um, and ugly, and has um, just wisdom that has helped me to to develop in each of those areas. But I've also had the, the luck of coming across other people who have helped me pull these threads together and weave them together in a way that makes me feel um, ready to take on this tremendous responsibility that I have. I am proud to take on this role, to be in this space, to have the opportunities uh, and the responsibilities that I have now. Uh, but I also feel ready because there have been so many people who, not knowing we were doing this, but have gotten me ready for this moment. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm appreciative for everyone who has in- invested in me. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet you too. And that was my conversation with Deborah Archer. If you want more of these conversations, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and share with a friend. And don't forget to follow me at hel.gadavis on Instagram. Helga, The Armory Conversations is a co-production of WNYC Studios and Park Avenue Armory. The show is produced by Crystal Hawes-Dressler with help from Darian Suggs and myself. Our technical producer is Sapir Rosenblatt. Original music by Michelle Ndege Ocello and Jason Moran. Special thanks to Alex Ambrose. Avery Willis-Hoffman is our executive producer. City and Bloomberg Philanthropies are the Armory's 2021 season sponsors. And now, the CODA. When I was 15 years old in ninth grade at the Walden School, I was the receptionist at the American Civil Liberties Union. Were you After really? school. <laughs> that was my job from 3.30 to 5.30. And people were allowed to come up to the eighth floor because we also had literature. And it was not infrequent <laughs> to have someone come up who was fully clad 
in the aluminum foil on their heads, demanding to see an attorney because they, them, someone, beings, were trying to control their brains and they needed help. And I was 15 and asked to field these conversations until someone else could come and explain to them that at this part of the organization, we deal with national issues and that people who needed individual attorneys had to go. So we would explain all the things, but to someone who thinks that their brain is being taken over, uh, it's not an easy case to make. But you know, what it did was it helped me understand the many worlds in which all people exist. And so I had my church community, I had my music community, I had my family, nuclear family community, and then I had this other view of the world that was very, very important in terms of informing and being included in this whole view. And yes, it was a lot of responsibility for a 15-year-old, but it's also the place where I learned about women's rights, where I learned about capital punishment, where I learned that there were lesbian and gay people who could be my friends and that I could be with these anarchists of liberty (laughs) and learn from them and learn and then get to go out in the world and measure their view of the world against the world that I was not only born into, but the one that I was trying to create.